Section 15 of What is Property? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What is Property? An Inquiry into the Principle of Right and of Government by Pierre Joseph Proudhon. Translated by Benjamin R. Tucker. Chapter 4, Part 3 That Property is Impossible fifth proposition property is impossible because if it exists society devours itself when the ass is too heavily loaded he lies down man always moves on upon this indomitable courage the proprietor well knowing that it exists bases his hopes of speculation the free laborer produces ten for me thinks the proprietor he will produce twelve indeed before consenting to the confiscation of his field before bidding farewell to the paternal roof the peasant whose story we have just told makes a desperate effort he leases new land he will sow one-third more and taking half of this new product for himself he will harvest an additional sixth and thereby pay his rent. What an evil! To add one-sixth to his production, the farmer must add not one-sixth, but two-sixths to his labour. At such a price, he pays a farm rent which in God's eyes he does not owe. The tenant's example is followed by the manufacturer. The former tills more land, and dispossesses his neighbours. The latter lowers the price of his merchandise, and endeavours to monopolise its manufacture and sale, and to crush out his competitors. To satisfy property, the labourer must first produce beyond his needs. Then he must produce beyond his strength, for, by the withdrawal of labourers who become proprietors, the one always follows from the other. But to produce beyond his strength and needs, he must invade the production of another, and consequently diminish the number of producers. Thus the proprietor, after having lessened production by stepping outside, lessens it still further by encouraging the monopoly of labour. Let us calculate it. The labourer's deficit, after paying his rent, being, as we have seen, one-tenth, he tries to increase his production by this amount. He sees no way of accomplishing this save by increasing his labour. This also he does. The discontent of the proprietors who have not received the full amount of their rent, the advantageous offers and promises made them by other farmers, whom they suppose more diligent, more industrious, and more reliable, the secret plots and intrigues, all these give rise to a movement for the redivision of labour and the elimination of a certain number of producers. Out of nine hundred, ninety will be ejected, that the production of others may be increased one-tenth. But will the total product be increased? Not in the least. There will be eight hundred and ten labourers producing as nine hundred, while, to accomplish their purpose, they would have to produce as one thousand. Now, it having been proved that farm rent is proportional to the landed capital instead of to labour, 
and that it never diminishes. The debts must continue as in the past while the labour has increased. Here, then, we have a society which is continually decimating itself, and which would destroy itself, did not the periodical occurrence of failures, bankruptcies, and political and economical catastrophes re-establish equilibrium, and distract attention from the real causes of the universal distress. The monopoly of land and capital is followed by economical processes which also result in throwing labourers out of employment. Interest being a constant burden upon the shoulders of the farmer and the manufacturer, they exclaim, each speaking for himself, I should have the means wherewith to pay my rent and interest, had I not to pay so many hands. Then those admirable inventions, intended to assure the easy and speedy performance of labour, become so many infernal machines which kill labourers by thousands. A few years ago the Countess of Strafford ejected fifteen thousand persons from her estate, who, as tenants, added to its value. This act of private administration was repeated in 1820 by another large Scotch proprietor towards six hundred tenants and their families. Tissot on Suicide and Revolt The author whom I quote, and who has written eloquent words concerning the revolutionary spirit which prevails in modern society, does not say whether he would have disapproved of a revolt on the part of these exiles. For myself, I avow boldly that in my eyes it would have been the first of rights, and the holiest of duties, and all that I desire today is that my profession of faith be understood. Society devours itself, one, by the violent and periodical sacrifice of labourers, this we have just seen, and shall see again, two, by the stoppage of the producer's consumption caused by property. These two modes of suicide are at first simultaneous, but soon the first is given additional force by the second, famine uniting with usury to render labour at once more necessary and more scarce. By the principles of commerce and political economy, that an industrial enterprise may be successful, its product must furnish 1. the interest of the capital employed, 2. means for the preservation of this capital, 3. the wages of all the employees and contractors, further, as large a profit as possible must be realised. The financial shrewdness and rapacity of property is worthy of admiration. Each different name which increase takes affords the proprietor an opportunity to receive it. 1. In the form of interest. 2. In the form of profit. For, it says, a part of the income derived from manufacturers consists of interest on the capital employed. If one hundred thousand francs have been invested in a manufacturing enterprise, and in a year's time five thousand francs have been received therefrom in addition to the expenses, there has been no profit, but only interest on the capital. Now the proprietor is not a man to labour for nothing. Like the lion in the fable, he gets paid in each of his capacities, so that, after he has been served, nothing is left for his associates. Ego primam tolo nominor quia leo, secundam quia sum fortis tributis mihi 
tumquia plus valeo, me sequetur tertia, malo ad ficietur, si quis quartam tetigerit. I know nothing prettier than this fable. I am the contractor, I take the first share. I am the labourer, I take the second. I am the capitalist, I take the third. I am the proprietor, I take the whole. In four lines, Phaedrus has summed up all the forms of property. I say that this interest, all the more than this profit, is impossible. What are labourers in relation to each other? So many members of a large industrial society, to each of whom is assigned a certain portion of the general production, by the principle of the division of labour and functions. Suppose, first, that this society is composed of but three individuals, a cattle-raiser, a tanner, and a shoemaker. The social industry, then, is that of shoemaking. If I should ask what ought to be each producer's shares of the social product, the first schoolboy whom I should meet would answer, by a rule of commerce and association, that it should be one-third. But it is not our duty here to balance the rights of labourers conventionally associated. We have to prove that, whether associated or not, our three workers are obliged to act as if they were, that, whether they will or no, they are associated by the force of things, by mathematical necessity. Three processes are required in the manufacture of shoes, the rearing of cattle, the preparation of their hides, and the cutting and sewing. If the hide, on leaving the farmer's stable, is worth one, it is worth two on leaving the tanner's pit, and three on leaving the shoemaker's shop. Each labourer has produced a portion of the utility, so that, by adding all these portions together, we get the value of the article. To obtain any quantity whatever of this article, each producer must pay, then, first for his own labour, and second for the labour of the other producers. Thus, to obtain as many shoes as can be made from ten hides, the farmer will give thirty raw hides, and the tanner twenty tanned hides. For, the shoes that are made from ten hides are worth thirty raw hides, in consequence of the extra labour bestowed upon them, just as twenty tan hides are worth thirty raw hides, on account of the tanner's labour. But if the shoemaker demands thirty-three in the farmer's product, or twenty-two in the tanner's, for ten in his own, there will be no exchange. For, if there were, the farmer and the tanner, after having paid the shoemaker ten for his labour, would have to pay eleven for that which they had themselves sold for ten, which, of course, would be impossible. Footnote. There is an error in the author's calculation here. But the translator, feeling sure that the reader will understand Proudhon's meaning, prefers not to alter his figures. Translator. And a footnote. Well, this is precisely what happens whenever an emolument of any kind is received, be it called revenue, farm rent, interest, or profit. In the little community of which we are speaking, if the shoemaker, in order to procure tools by a stock of leather, and support himself until he receives something from his investment, borrows money at interest, it is clear that to pay this interest he will have to make a profit off the tanner and the farmer. But as this profit is impossible unless fraud is used, 
the interest will fall back upon the shoulders of the unfortunate shoemaker and ruin him. I have imagined a case of unnatural simplicity. There is no human society but sustains more than three vocations. The most uncivilized society supports numerous industries. Today, the number of industrial functions, I mean by industrial functions, all useful functions, exceeds, perhaps, a thousand. However numerous the occupations, the economic law remains the same. That the producer may live, his wages must repurchase his product. The economists cannot be ignorant of this rudimentary principle of their pretended science. Why, then, do they so obstinately defend property and inequality of wages and the legitimacy of usury and the honesty of profit, all of which contradict the economic law and make exchange impossible? A contractor pays 100,000 francs for raw material, 50,000 francs in wages, and then expects to receive a product of 200,000 francs, that is, expects to make a profit on the material and on the labour of his employees. But if the labourers and the purveyor of the material cannot, with their combined wages, repurchase that which they have produced for the contractor, how can they live? I will develop my question. Here details become necessary. If the working man receives for his labour an average of three francs per day, his employer, in order to gain anything beyond his own salary, if only interest on his capital, must sell the day's labour of his employee, in the form of merchandise, for more than three francs. The working man cannot, then, repurchase that which he has produced for his master. It is thus with all trades whatsoever. The tailor, the hatter, the cabinet-maker, the blacksmith, the tanner, the mason, the jeweller, the printer, the clerk, etc., even to the farmer and wine-grower, cannot repurchase their products, since, producing for a master who in one form or another makes a profit, they are obliged to pay more for their own labour than they get for it. In France, twenty millions of labourers, engaged in all the branches of science, art, and industry, produce everything which is useful to man. Their annual wages amount, it is estimated, to twenty thousand millions, but, in consequence of the right of property, and the multifarious forms of increase, premiums, tithes, interests, fines, profits, farm rents, house rents, revenues, emoluments of every nature and description, their products are estimated by their proprietors and employers at twenty-five thousand millions. What does that signify? That the labourers, who are obliged to repurchase these products in order to live, must either pay five for that which they produced for four, or fast one day in five. If there is an economist in France able to show that this calculation is false, I summon him to appear, and I promise to retract all that I have wrongfully and wickedly uttered in my attacks upon property. Let us now look at the results of this profit. If the wages of the working men were the same in all pursuits, the deficit caused by the proprietor's tax would be felt equally everywhere but also the cause of the evil would be so apparent 
that it would soon be discovered and suppressed. But, as there is the same inequality of wages, from that of the scavenger up to that of the minister of state, as of property, robbery continually rebounds from the stronger to the weaker, so that, since the labourer finds his hardships increase as he descends in the social scale, the lowest class of people are literally stripped naked and eaten alive by the others. The labouring people can buy neither the cloth which they weave, nor the furniture which they manufacture, nor the metal which they forge, nor the jewels which they cut, nor the prints which they engrave. They can procure neither the wheat which they plant, nor the wine which they grow, nor the flesh of the animals which they raise. They are allowed neither to dwell in the houses which they build, nor to attend the place which their labour supports, nor to enjoy the rest which their body requires. And why? Because the right of increase does not permit these things to be sold at the cost price, which is all that labourers can afford to pay. On the signs of those magnificent warehouses which he in his poverty admires, the labourer reads in large letters, This is thy work, and thou shalt not have it. Sic was non vobis. Every manufacturer who employs one thousand labourers, and gains from them daily one sou each, is slowly pushing them into a state of misery. Every man who makes a profit has entered into a conspiracy with famine. But the whole nation has not even this labour, by means of which property starves it. And why? Because the workers are forced by the insufficiency of their wages to monopolise labour, and because, before being destroyed by dearth, they destroy each other by competition. Let us pursue this truth no further. If the labourer's wages will not purchase his product, it follows that the product is not made for the producer. For whom, then, is it intended? For the richer consumer, that is, for only a fraction of society. But when the whole society labours, it produces for the whole society. If, then, only a part of society consumes, sooner or later a part of society will be idle. Now, idleness is death as well for the labourer as for the proprietor. This conclusion is inevitable. The most distressing spectacle imaginable is the sight of producers resisting and struggling against this mathematical necessity, this power of figures to which their prejudices blind them. If one hundred thousand printers can furnish reading matter enough for thirty-four millions of men, and if the price of books is so high that only one-third of that number can afford to buy them, it is clear that these one hundred thousand printers will produce three times as much as the booksellers can sell, that the products of the labourers may never exceed the demands of the consumers, the labourers must either rest two days out of three, or, separating into three groups, relieve each other three times a week, month, or quarter that is, during two-thirds of their life they must not live. But industry, under the influence of property, does not proceed with such regularity. It endeavours to produce a great deal in a short time, because the greater the amount of products, and the shorter the time of production, 
the less each product costs. As soon as a demand begins to be felt, the factories fill up, and everybody goes to work. Then business is lively, and both governors and governed rejoice. But the more they work today, the more idle will they be hereafter. The more they laugh, the more they shall weep. Under the rule of property, the flowers of industry are woven into none but funeral wreaths. The labourer digs his own grave. If the factory stops running, the manufacturer has to pay interest on his capital the same as before. He naturally tries, then, to continue production by lessening expenses. Then comes the lowering of wages, the introduction of machinery, the employment of women and children to do the work of men, bad workmen and wretched work. They still produce because the decreased cost creates a larger market, but they do not produce long because the cheapness being due to the quantity and rapidity of production, the productive power tends more than ever to outstrip consumption. It is when labourers, whose wages are scarcely sufficient to support them from one day to another, are thrown out of work, that the consequences of the principle of property becomes most frightful. They have not been able to economise, they have made no savings, they have accumulated no capital whatever to support them even one day more. Today the factory is closed, tomorrow the people starve in the streets. Day after tomorrow, they will either die in the hospital or eat in the jail. And still new misfortunes come to complicate this terrible situation. In consequence of the cessation of business and the extreme cheapness of merchandise, the manufacturer finds it impossible to pay the interest on his borrowed capital, whereupon his frightened creditors hasten to withdraw their funds. Production is suspended and labour comes to a standstill. Then people are astonished to see capital desert commerce and throw itself upon the stock exchange, and I once heard Mr. Blanky bitterly lamenting the blind ignorance of capitalists. The cause of this movement of capital is very simple, but for that very reason an economist could not understand it, or rather must not explain it. The cause lies solely in competition. I mean by competition not only the rivalry between two parties engaged in the same business, but the general and simultaneous effort of all kinds of business to get ahead of each other. This effort is today so strong that the price of merchandise scarcely covers the cost of production and distribution, so that the wages of all labourers being lessened, nothing remains, not even interest, for the capitalists. The primary cause of commercial and industrial stagnations is, then, interest on capital. That interest which the ancients with one accord branded with the name of usury, whenever it was paid for the use of money, but which they did not dare to condemn in the forms of house-rent, farm-rent, or profit, as if the nature of the thing lent could ever warrant a charge for the lending, that is, robbery. In proportion to the increase received by the capitalists will be the frequency and intensity of commercial crises. The first being given, we always can determine the two others, and vice versa. Do you wish to know the regulator of a society? Ascertain the amount of active capital. 
that is, the capital-bearing interest, and the legal rate of this interest. The course of events will be a series of overturns, whose number and violence will be proportional to the activity of capital. In 1839 the number of failures in Paris alone was 1,064. This proportion was kept up in the early months of 1840, and, as I write these lines, the crisis is not yet ended. It is said, further, that the number of houses which have wound up their business is greater than the number of declared failures. By this flood we may judge the water-spout's power of suction. The decimation of society is now imperceptible and permanent, now periodical and violent. It depends upon the course which property takes. In a country where the property is pretty evenly distributed, and where little business is done, the rights and claim of each being balanced by those of others, the power of invasion is destroyed. There, it may be truly said, property does not exist, since the right of increase is scarcely exercised at all. The condition of the labourers, as regards security of life, is almost the same as if absolute equality prevailed among them. They are deprived of all the advantages of full and free association, but their existence is not endangered in the least. With the exception of a few isolated victims of the right of property, of this misfortune whose primary cause no one perceives, the society appears to rest calmly in the bosom of this sort of equality. But have a care, it is balanced on the edge of a sword, at the slightest shock it will fall and meet with death. Ordinarily the whirlpool of property localizes itself. On the one hand farm rent stops at a certain point, on the other, in consequence of competition and overproduction, the price of manufactured goods does not rise, so that the condition of the peasant varies but little, and depends mainly on the seasons. The devouring action of property bears, then, principally upon business. We commonly say commercial crisis, not agricultural crisis, because while the farmer is eaten up slowly by the rate of increase, the manufacturer is swallowed at a single mouthful. This leads to the cessation of business, the destruction of fortunes, and the inactivity of the working people, who die one after another on the highways, and in the hospitals, prisons, and gullies. To sum up this proposition, property sells products to the labourer for more than it pays him for them. Therefore, it is impossible. End of chapter 4, fifth proposition. Recording by Sylvie Brown, Verdun, France.